listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. The year was 1955, and in Montgomery, Alabama, the tension was rising. The African-American community was involved in a comprehensive boycott of the public transit system as a protest against legally segregated seating on the buses. Whites at the front and the back, blacks in a section in the middle. And if the black seats happened to be filled, which they often were as that community was more dependent on public transit than were their white counterparts, well, that was just too bad. On December 1st, 1955, a black woman named Rosa Parks, tired after a long day of work, was sitting in the foremost row in which black people could sit when a white man entered the bus and the bus driver told everyone in her row to get up and to move back. Rosa Parks refused. And that refusal was like a spark striking dry tinder. Her arrest, occasioning the beginning of a long strike that challenged the financial viability of that city's bus system. Strike wore on for fully 12 months, with people walking the miles to work or relying on a ride-sharing system that the churches had organized, vehemently opposed by the local city council. Month after month after month, they persisted, all for the sake of the dignity of equal sitting on the buses. Now, one of the most visible organizers and spokespeople for that boycott was a young Baptist pastor named Martin Luther King, Jr. His eloquent and powerful voice rang out to encourage people to remain steadfast in the boycott and to resist any temptation to respond to violence with violence. And there was violence, both real and threatened. In the midst of that boycott, what Martin Luther King heard one night early in 1956 was akin to what Elijah heard in the cave on Mount Horeb. Variously translated from the Hebrew as a still small voice, the King James Version, a gentle whisper, in the New International, the sound of sheer silence in the New Revised Standard, which we heard tonight. The Hebrew word is elusive, yet the impact remains. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, our text reads. It came to a tired, dispirited, fearful Elijah, who believed he'd been faithful in his calling as a prophet as one who speaks forth God's sometimes difficult message to the people. Yet as far as he could tell, it had all come to naught. 
The nation was under the rule of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, who had systematically suppressed the Torah-shaped faith of Israel and aggressively introduced the religion of Baal as the new normal. Elijah had boldly faced them down, very publicly calling them to return to the God of Israel, put away their idolatrous religion. As told in the first book of Kings, this had culminated in a public standoff between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, at the end of which all of the people saw it, fell on their faces and said, Ah, the Lord indeed is God. The Lord indeed is God. Mm, But this repentance by the people was accompanied by the prophets of Baal being put to death by the sword, typically raw Old Testament stuff. And that rather raised the ire of Jezebel and Ahab, leading Jezebel to send Elijah a message saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them you had just killed by this time tomorrow. You're going down, Elijah, and you're going down hard. Well, it's at this point that Elijah flees for his life, going a day's journey into the wilderness, sitting down under a solitary broom tree, praying that he might die. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. I failed. All of my best efforts have led to nothing. My righteous anger has only caused Jezebel and Ahab to react with an even greater violence. Let me die. But no. Elijah fell asleep under that tree, and as soon as he's asleep, the text says, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. And Elijah looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat. Otherwise, the journey will be too much for you. And so, sustained by that bread and water, Elijah got up and journeyed 40 days into the wilderness. Now that's a significant and symbolic number, if ever there was one, right? 40 days. It echoes Israel's 40 years in the Sinai Desert and foreshadows Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. And after his 40 days, he arrived at Mount Horeb, one of the holy mountains in the story of Israel. It's there at Mount Horeb that Elijah will encounter the presence of the God he has been serving, but not in any way like what he might have expected. Go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord, Elijah, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the still small voice, the quiet whisper, the sound of sheer silence. 
not in the great wind that swept across the mountain, not in the powerful shaking of the ground, not in the might of a blazing fire, signs that one might expect of the power of God. No, after the fire, a sound of sheer silence, the still small voice. This is what bears the consolation that Elijah's tired, tired soul most needs to hear. Like the word given to Martin Luther King Jr., it was necessary food for the long journey. So let me tell you about that word as described by the theologian James Cone in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Cone writes, Openly to fight white supremacy in the deep south during the 1950s and 60s was unthinkably perilous. Even at a distance of more than 50 years, we can still sense the fear. When King agreed to act as the most visible leader in the civil rights movement, he recognized what was at stake. In taking up the cross of black leadership, he was nearly overwhelmed with fear. This fear reached a climax on a particular night, January 27, 1956, in the early weeks of the Montgomery bus boycott, when he received a midnight phone call threatening to blow up his house if he did not leave Montgomery in three days. Later, he told how that call created a spiritual midnight as he thought about what could happen to him, his wife, and newly born baby girl. Later, recalling the incident, King told how fear drove him from bed to the kitchen where he prayed out loud, pleading, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faulting. I'm losing my courage. So much like Elijah. I'm losing my courage. That yet then King heard a voice, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even to the end of the world. Not that it suddenly became easy. Not for Elijah, who was sent from Mount Horeb back through the wilderness, back to his prophetic job. Not for Martin Luther King Jr., whose long walk of nonviolent resistance will find his home bombed those three days later, as had been threatened. See him land in jail several times over the years, and of course finally end in his own violent assassination. Not easy. And I'd be remiss if I didn't this night mention a flurry of articles currently prominent online, citing evidence from old FBI files that have just been brought public, suggesting that King's life was broken and complicated, that he could be sexually very irresponsible, anything but a stained-glass saint. Still, 
As a recent opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal put it, when King preached to his congregation, he often spoke of himself as a sinner. Unlike some preachers, he meant it. He knew that he was a flawed man. And whatever eventually does come to light about his broken life through those files, it does not change what he knew with such clarity that night in his kitchen in 1956, that he was not alone, that he should not be paralyzed by fear. Lo, I will be with you even to the end of the world. Truthfully, though, The consolation given us in those times when a clear and quiet word, the gift of maybe silent and still resting, the strong sense of the presence of the holy, the gentle assurance that we sometimes receive that in spite of the messes and pains of life, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well, Well, none of those things mean that everything suddenly becomes easy for us either. But they remain gifts, small graces along the way that make it possible to keep moving forward in a posture of trust in spite of our fear. And you do know that it's at times when things seem the muddiest, the hardest, the most murky, that we often most need to let go of our need for clear, clean propositions, for rational, reasoned explanations, and simply be in stillness, our hands open to receive what we most need. For lo, God will be with us even to the end of the world. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.